Um, We are in Colossians 3. If you would open your Bibles to Colossians 3. Uh, We are going to be picking up in verse 12. Um, And as you open up your Bibles, has anyone found themselves in a position where they weren't quite dressed for the occasion that they were invited to? Yeah? So I... I had the privilege of being uh, the Secretary General for the United States for the Olympic sport of fencing, and I went to London for my first international meeting, and so, you know, you do the red eye overnight, you get there, you get off, you take the tube, you get to where you're supposed to be staying, you go up, you shower, and by that point, it's kind of in the afternoon, and on basically an hour after I'd gotten there, they had this small gathering for dinner. Um, And so you're supposed to get together, you're supposed to have dinner. And so being from Colorado, I had on jeans and a sport coat, and I go down the elevator and I open up and everybody's in a tuxedo, (laughs) to which I'm pushing close, 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 close. (laughs) Um, I was severely underdressed. And I realized that If I remain down there in what was comfortable to me, the stereotype of the U.S. people being arrogant and doing whatever they want to do would simply be reinforced. And the reality was nobody had given me any insight on what it was supposed to look like to represent the United States in an international meeting that was simply a casual, set on the invitation, affair. Like, I was thinking, you know, can I go down just in a polo? Um, when I saw casual, didn't say business casual, it just said casual. Um, totally different scenario. But in that moment, I realized that I was representing our country. And I had a choice to make. And Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, specifically beginning in verse 12 of chapter 3 says, as believers in Christ, you have an opportunity to represent the kingdom well or not. And so he uses this clothing metaphor that's connected to our identity in Christ. I'll read the whole thing in a second. But all he says is, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and Beloved, see, as followers of Jesus, there's appropriate attire for us to wear that is grounded, rooted in our position as heirs to the kingdom. Recall in chapter 1, if you want to turn back a page or two, verse 13, Paul says that we were delivered from the domain of darkness, transferred into the kingdom of Jesus because we are redeemed. Verse 21 of chapter 1, once alienated, but now reconciled to God, holy and blameless and above reproach. Chapter 2, verse 13, once dead in your trespass, now made alive by God, having been forgiven. Chapter 3, verse 1, forgiven in, raised with Christ. And here beginning in verse 12, he says, God's chosen holy and beloved. That's who you are. 
you're a follower of Jesus, you sit here, God's chosen one, holy and beloved. You're part of His covenantal family. You've been chosen by the Creator of the entire universe. You're an heir to His eternal inheritance. It says, holy, set apart, and dearly loved. According to 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, it says you've been set apart by God's loving kindness for His purpose as an ambassador. Ambassadors live in a country but are not residents of the country, right? They represent their home country in a different country. They don't take on the culture of the foreign country but retain the culture of their home. And they do it unashamedly. If any of you have ever been in the embassy overseas, what you'll see is they don't hide their heritage. They clothe like they would in their home country. They live like they were still in their home country in dress, in word, and in deed, despite being in a very different place. And as followers of Jesus, that's who we are, ambassadors for Christ. How often do you consider yourself an ambassador to the kingdom? Like when you walk into work, do you think of yourself adorned in Christ as the ambassador, or do you refer to yourself as, you know, I'm an IT specialist, or I'm a marketer, or I flip burgers for a living? So often we think of ourselves far less than we should. We forget who we really are. And that's what Paul's getting at this morning. See, Paul is going to describe some heart virtues that should guide the way we relate to others that resemble the Savior. And he's also going to describe a heart attitude that characterizes the way we relate vertically to God. So, virtues, horizontal, attitude, vertical. And so, let's jump in, follow along as I read. We're going to see how Paul calls us to reflect the Savior rest in Him, and respond to who He is and what He's done. So Paul writes, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another and... If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were called in one body, and be thankful. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And friends, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. See, according to Paul, 
we're to metaphorically dress according to our calling. As Christ's followers, we're to reflect the Savior, walking and talking as Christ's followers, because we have the privilege and the honor to represent the kingdom in a world in desperate need of hope. That's who we are. We are His. We're to live in a way that's evident for all to see whose we are. We are His. So look where Paul starts. He says, put on then compassion. Clothe yourself in a way that reflects Christ for all the world to see, first by putting on compassion. I don't know about you, but compassion isn't something that you can just kind of grab out of your closet and throw on. It doesn't work that way. What is it? Well, if you recall, our ministry year is focused on reflecting the compassion of Christ for this particular community. Per our lease, we have one year in this building. If the building doesn't sell to someone else, we get to stay longer. Personally, I love the Lord to provide more, but we know it's not guaranteed. We have one year to impact, demonstrate, reflect compassion of Christ to this community. It started three weeks ago, which means we have 49 more weeks, and who's counting? Yes, I am counting. Here's a question I encourage you to write down, something to pray about, something to consider. What are we going to do with this year? Lord, how are we going to use this year? How do you desire us to reflect the Savior as we engage with this community? While the elders may have ideas and ways we can engage, it's not just us. A group of people got together last week, as you heard about. You're going to hear about a little bit more after service. This is front and center for us, but what we think we should be doing matters little. What God thinks we should be doing matters most. See, putting on compassion isn't a program. It's not an outreach event. It's not things that we do week in, week out. Putting on compassion, according to Paul, is a posture that followers of Jesus adopt as they engage with the world. See, when others look at us, we should be clothed in compassion. It should be evident such that folks equate us with the virtue of compassion. Being compassionate doesn't make us a Christ follower. It doesn't earn us anything. It simply helps others see that we are followers of Jesus, provided we let them know about our conviction and our witness actually matches up and we reflect the Savior. So as I was preparing, I kept asking myself, what does it look like to put these virtues on? And you may know I like visual things. I'm a very visual learner. So I brought props. 
So, I'm going to let you in on a little secret of the Eichley household. I love the Hawkeyes. So we got that one. We've got this one in case gray didn't work. And then we've got this other gray. It's much softer than the other two. Like this is probably my favorite shirt. And then in case you want to work out, you got to have, you know, the gear that you work out with. And then, well, it's a little chilly, so we'll get a little longer sleeve. And then just in case you want to go business casual, you can go a couple days if you want. And then, you know, you can wear a hat, but you can put one on backwards if you wanted to be seen from behind as well. And then if it's cold, you got a sweatshirt. And then, guys, this is vintage. This is 33 years old. They don't make sweaters, sweatshirts this thick anymore because they're terrible. Um, and then when you've worn them out, they become work shirts because you can't throw them away. I, and yes, I, I, I have one more just in case that one was dirty and I want to work two days in a row. I am unashamed of my position as an Iowa fan. When I look at the pictures on my phone or my Facebook feed, I can almost instantly determine if that picture was taken on a Saturday in the fall. Because myself, my wife, and most of our children are adorned in Hawkeye gear, which means it was a football day. Now, some may be thinking, dude, that's excessive. Y'all are a little nuts. Yes. See, guess what, though? I wasn't born a Hawkeye fan. I didn't grow up a Hawkeye fan. I didn't even know the Hawkeyes existed. See, everyone I grew up around in Chicago either went to the University of Illinois, so they were Illini, or they went to Northwestern if you had good enough grades and you're a wildcat. See, I was converted into a Hawkeye on account of what the university did for me. They recruited me. They pursued me. They offered me scholarships for academics and sports and music. And my time there as a student, as an athlete, and then as staff contributed greatly to who I am today. You may not realize it, but my time there contributed greatly to your experience here this morning. The fact that we have cleaner sound in the sanctuary than when we moved in was because of my time there, going through sound engineering, traveling around the country, having to set up sound in room after room after room. I can play piano because they paid for me to go to school and required me to practice for hours and hours and hours in a little room on an upright piano that wasn't even tuned. Painful. And if that wasn't enough, then I had to find a way to pay for school, and so I played jazz gigs Thursday, Friday, and Saturday evenings. Played a lot. I was an athlete. I got to coach at the highest level. 
I got to experience what high-level coaches were, and because of my biomechanics background, I was then brought on at a university, which then brought me to London as the head of an Olympic sport. Sheila and I met because we had a shared experience of being in part of the university athletic program, even though we weren't there at the same time. See, here's the reality. Iowa changed me fundamentally. I was a different person when I graduated than when I started. But see, there's a deeper reality. Christ changed me. I didn't have to invest hours and hours and hours in practicing. Christ changed me. He pursued me. He gave me a desire for Him. He redeemed me. He rescued me. He did all the things in my life that make me positionally His that this verse is based upon. And for many of you here, He changed you as well. If you have placed your faith and your trust in Him as your Savior, then He did everything needed to make you positionally His. And on account of what He's done, we should be more fanatic about that reality than any sports team, any athlete, any music artist. We should be unashamed of being a Christ follower. But unlike all of this attire, which I enjoy wearing We don't let the world know who we are and whose we are by what we physically put on, but the posture that we adopt when we engage with it. The virtual clothing we put on as Christ followers reflects the Savior. And it starts with compassion. See, compassion is suffering together, literally. It's understanding what others are going through and meeting them at their point of need. It's understanding what Mike Donahue is going through with his father and meeting him at his point of need. And I look around the room and I know story after story after story of people who are in pain and hardship. And it's understanding what you're going through and meeting you at your point of need. See, compassion requires us to give of ourselves for others' benefit. Friends, if we do an outreach program to this community for the purpose of growing this church, it is for loss and for want. That's not why we do outreach. We don't do outreach to see how the Lord would grow this community here at Hope Chapel in the next year for the sake of growth. It's understanding what people are walking through and being willing to meet them at their point of need and allowing the Lord to do the rest. And in order to do that, it means we have to be in relationship with others. You can't invite somebody to Easter and Christmas and expect to demonstrate compassion. 
See, being compassionate reflects the Savior. What did it look like in Jesus' life? Jesus turned water into wine at the request of his mother so the groom's family would not be ashamed for not having enough. He understood what they were walking through and met them at their point of need. He healed the leper. He gave sight to the blind. In Scripture, we find Jesus eating with tax collectors and prostitutes and those society deemed outcasts to express love in a very tangible way. He was patient with the disciples. He challenged the disciples to step up and care for others. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He healed the soldiers' daughters. He had breakfast ready for Peter, even after Peter had denied him three times. And ultimately, Jesus bore our sin and shame on the place on the cross. That's the compassion of Christ. Are you willing to give of yourself to meet others' needs? I believe that's why Paul starts with compassion because naturally we don't want to give of ourselves. We like pleasing ourselves. In marriage, we like being right. As parents, we're never wrong. Right, guys? Paul starts with compassion. Also because it's the most tangible. You want to reflect the Savior? Start there. Don't start by taking a seminary class. Don't start by going through a Bible study. Put on compassion. And then Paul says, once you've learned to suffer with people, or at least as you're learning to suffer with people, there's a host of other things that should also be evident in your life that reflect Christ's life on earth. He says, put on kindness. Characteristically, a kind person is someone who's thoughtful and considerate. We have experienced Christ's kindness towards us. And therefore, we should reflect the Savior by expressing kindness towards others. Put on humility. According to Romans 12, 3, it means that we see ourselves rightly before God. And according to in Paul's letter to the Philippians in chapter 2, it means we value others as more significant than ourselves. Paul writes in humility... He, Jesus, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Reflect the Savior and put on humility. Put on meekness. Meekness is also referred to as gentleness in Scripture. Jesus said, blessed are the meek. It's a peaceful and unassuming attitude that Paul uses to describe Christ in his second letter to the Corinthians. 
And just in case we don't like taking man's word for it, Jesus described himself that way in Matthew 11. As the Savior is meek, his followers are to reflect him. He says, put on patience. Now, sometimes we laugh because we say, you know, it's not a good idea to pray for patience because the Lord will give us opportunities to learn it. But Paul says, put it on. Patience involves a measured response to others, especially when we face opposition. Think of the Lord who answered not a word. Paul says, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, wait a minute, Paul, that never happens. No one ever offends you, right? Ever. No? Well, good, then we can just forget about it. But if... In the rare chance that somebody offends you, Paul says, forgive them. In fact, Paul says, forgive them in half a verse, three times. Forgive, forgive, forgive. God is saying when others offend you, not if others offend you, forgive them. Christ demonstrated this specifically on the cross, right? He looks at those who beat Him, who mocked Him, who scorned Him, who placed Him, right? Put, drove nails into His wrist, and He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I mean, I held a grudge against my son who hit me on the wrist with a racket on Friday because it hurt. I was like, man, yesterday it's still tender. I'm like, mm, kill that kid. <laughs> Wait till we play again, I'll get him back. <laughs> I did take his racket away for a while. <laughs> Why are we to forgive others when they offend us? Paul says, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. See, here's the deal, though. Our forgiving them does not excuse their sin. I've heard this often. Well, you know what? If I forgive them, it's just going to enable them. No, that's a self-protective measure because you just simply don't want to forgive. Forgiving them doesn't excuse or negate their sin. It allows us to graciously and undeservingly cover their offenses with grace, preserve unity, and help bitterness, prevent bitterness from taking root in your own heart. That's why you forgive, because it reflects the Savior. And so Paul has this list of ways to reflect the Savior. All these things we're supposed to put on. 
He starts with compassion, and then he ends the list with the thing we think he probably should have started with, which is put on love. See, when we love others, a number of things happen. Loving others is evidence of our salvation, right? Putting on love embodies the gospel. Loving others expresses our love for God in response to His love for us. Putting on love epitomizes the character of God. And it's as we love others that we reflect the Savior most perfectly. That's how Paul describes these heart virtues that should guide the way that we horizontally relate to one another. As followers of Jesus, heir to the throne, God's chosen, holy, and beloved, to a certain degree, this is our duty and it's our delight. But sadly, we're more concerned often with feeding our own desires than ensuring we reflect the Savior when relating to others. And then Paul makes a shift as he moves to verse 15, shifting from our horizontal relationship with one another to address our vertical relationship with our Lord. Verse 15, Paul writes, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. See, this is a heart attitude we're to adopt that enables us to rest in our Savior. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Other translations say, reign in your hearts. Let it govern your heart. Let it guide your heart. Let the peace of Christ have complete control over your heart. Because when the peace of Christ rules in our hearts, our lives look different from the rest of the world. Fear, anxiety, fretting no longer plague us. It no longer constitutes our countenance. The things that we were instructed to put to death in verse 5 no longer have power over us. Paul says, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry, they no longer have their way with us when the peace of Christ rules over our hearts. When the peace of Christ rules in our hearts, we're enabled to put away that which we're instructed to put away in verse 8. All anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk and lying, those things no longer plague us, nor do they characterize us anymore when the peace of Christ rules in our hearts. See, when the peace of Christ rules in our hearts, we can rest in our Savior. We no longer have to take matters into our own hands. Now, Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule. 
Friends, that means we must actively rest in our Savior. Yes, it seems oxymoronic. We are to actively rest. Friends, it's easy for my life to be characterized by anything but peace. Anxiety, frustration, worry, stress, the list can go on. You may find yourself there. How many of you say, hey, you know what? When I get to that, when I have time, anybody? We're always doing something. Paul says there's something that we should be always doing. We're to actively rest in our Savior. It's an ongoing command. It's not just, oh yeah, you know that one time when I, you know, I, I, I spent you know, a couple hours in the Word, that kind of set me up for the year. You laugh because you've tried it. See, unlike the typical craziness of life that we often experience that we don't have control over, this idea of control eludes us. The peace that Paul describes here is actually available to us. So I have to ask, how well do I actively rest in my Savior? Anyone desire that peace? Anybody desire to actively rest in the Savior? Here's what Paul says. That thing that you desire, that desire to actively rest in the Savior is actually already yours. Look what he writes. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. It's not that you may be called. You might be or that you have to work to be called, it says indeed. Indeed means it is a sure thing. But he says, indeed, you were called into what? One body. See, Paul is saying the peace of Christ is not necessarily something you experience on your own. He doesn't say, to which indeed you were called, stop, and statement. He says, in one body. Before it, in your hearts, plural, now in your one body, means the peace of Christ is experienced in relationship with one another. 
as the body of Christ, we are to be characterized as free from worry, individually, corporately, as one body. Because it's as we encourage one another, as we pray for one another, as we assure one another, as we care for one another, we get to experience the peace of Christ most tangibly. Remember the list of Christ's compassion we talked about? All of those things He did, people experienced tangibly. We now, as followers of Jesus, are the hands and the feet of Jesus. We are meant to serve and encourage and assure one another in the name of Christ as we reflect and resemble the Savior. And as we do that corporately, as we get to experience this peace where we feel part of something that is greater than the individual, Paul tells us that we are to respond to the Savior appropriately. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you are indeed called in one body and be thankful. He didn't shift tenses. He's still talking about the corporate church, the gathering of the saints are to be thankful. That's how we respond to the Savior. We are to overflow with thankfulness for all that He's richly blessed us with. When our hearts rest in Christ, we can live with a perspective that enables us to be thankful, to respond to the Savior, because those things are connected. Friends, if we're not resting in Christ, it is next to impossible to actually respond appropriately in thanks because we don't understand what we'd be thanking Him for. Because we're anxious, because we're angry, because we have all these things, why would we then say, well, Lord, thank you for what you've given me? You've given me anger. That's awesome. Huh? It doesn't make sense. Ephesians 5 says we're to be thankful for all things. 1 Thessalonians 5 says we're to be thankful in all circumstances. Let me try to walk us through how this might play out. Let's say you recognize the life to which God has called you. You're looking at it. You're examining it. And you're aware that in the day-to-day, those things that were called to put to death and to put away, you know, not doing a great job there. Here's the thing. You're not alone. If I were to ask anybody who struggles with this to stand, this whole congregation should be standing. Which means you can turn to one another and be an encouragement. You can help guide and shepherd and disciple. But if you try to say, I'm going to hide it from everybody else. Like, I want this peace personally. I don't want this whole, you know, relationship thing. Like, that's no fun. 
you miss out on the best part. Because as you submit yourself to God through prayer, as we corporately submit ourselves to God through prayer, our submission to Him as Lord allows His supernatural peace to guard our heart and our mind. We're able to actively rest in Him. And when we actively rest in Him, our mind becomes saturated with thoughts of gratitude and those worldly distractions dissipate. And because the distractions dissipate, we're more likely and more able to focus on Jesus. And when we focus more on Jesus, we have greater confidence that the things we're facing really aren't that difficult. And when we get there, we can respond to the Savior. When we walk in on a Sunday morning and there is stress in the house because we couldn't get the kids out or because the person in front of us was driving 20 just out for a Sunday drive and we had already left 10 minutes late, never happens, or the battery didn't start, and then you walk in and the place you're supposed to be sitting is taken up by a visitor and now you have to shift and move. We're not thanking God. We're distracted. What happens in the earthly life when you're well-rested? For myself, I'm better prepared to engage the day. See, whether it's yard work or a basketball game, students, maybe it's writing a paper or doing chores, even working on your taxes, when you're well-rested, it goes better. When you're well-rested, loving and cherishing your spouse is more prevalent. Responding with patience to your children happens more readily. When you're well-rested, you're often less irritable, more patient, and simply more enjoyable to be around. Anybody like being around their kids that they've been up all night? It's like, no, go to your room, I'm good with it. Why? similar experience occurs in the spiritual realm. Being well-rested in Christ, having actively rested, enables you to be better prepared to encourage one another, to serve one another, to care for one another. If we're to put on compassion, when we're well-rested, we're, we're, we found that security in Christ, we can actually understand what somebody's going through and we're better prepared to meet them at their time of need. And collectively, it means we can respond to our Savior more effectively. When we actively rest in Christ, we look more and more like the men and women God designed and called us to be, and praise and gratitude more naturally results. Now look at the phrase Paul uses here. He says, 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. He doesn't say, let the experience of Christ dwell in you richly. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. See, the peace of Christ that rules our hearts enables us to be thankful, that allows us to respond with thanksgiving, drives towards the Word of Christ being central in our worship of the Father. The same truth of salvation that adopts us into the family of God as chosen ones, holy and beloved, is the same truth that unites us together as a family, one body, and should saturate our corporate worship of the Savior. See, so when Paul says we are to respond to the Savior in corporate praise and corporate worship, that worship is less about the music and more about the content because it's the Word of Christ that is to dwell richly. At Hope Chapel, we have adopted a rather rigorous set of criteria that we use when approving new music. Friends, according to this passage, the content of our worship is to be formative, not experiential. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs describe a variety of music styles that we are to use when when we teach and we admonish one another. Corporate worship must be infused with the truth of the gospel centered on the word. Anything less is anemic. And if it's anemic, it restricts our ability to build one another up according to his word. That means that it's not about how we feel about our time of worship. The question we should ask is not, did the music create an experience that we enjoy? According to Paul, what's more important is evaluating how our corporate time of worship builds us up in the Lord. When the song is stuck in your head, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, maybe nobody's ever experienced that, but I have. Is it building you up in the Lord? Or not? Does it help you to see him more clearly? And that brings us to the final verse in our passage this morning, verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through Him. See, if we continue thinking about this clothing metaphor that Paul has used, right? We're supposed to put to death, to put off, and now we're supposed to put on then. It seems that when Paul says, whatever you do, he's instructing us to put on clothing that's appropriate for any activity. It's kind of like a weekender set of pants, right? Anybody know what weekenders are? See, they're not sweatpants. Now, 
Many people would like to say that's what weekends are for, is sweatpants. But see, weekenders are flexible pants that can handle going for a walk, jogging in the rain. You can still do work in them because they still have pockets. You're not stuck without pockets. I don't know why you'd have any pants without pockets, but that's a whole different story. But they're still nice enough that you can go out to dinner in, and people don't look at you like, huh, he hasn't taken a shower yet today. That's what weekenders are. Particular types of clothing have particular purposes. How many of you are aware that one of our care group leaders is training for an ultramarathon? Some are. For those that don't know, um, uh, it's Mike Abram. He's training for an ultramarathon. So this first race that he's about to run is what? As many miles he can run in six hours. He's doing it right now. So he's running right now. Lord, we pray for sustaining grace right now. But the capstone of his year is actually running in the Leadville 100, which is a 100-mile trail run at elevation. Now, you all think I was nuts for this? Really? But see, I'm fully supportive of him doing what he believes the Lord has gifted him to do. Like he runs and he experiences God's pleasure when he runs. I run and I look for the ambulance. I'm not kidding. Here's the thing though. He's not planning on running that race in Crocs. Or dress shoes. Or cowboy boots, which he does love to wear. He has specific shoes. And wait a minute. When he's running on the road, he wears different shoes than when he's running on a trail. Because there's particular types of clothing that help us run the race well. This is what Paul is instructing us to do as well. He's saying, put on those things that help you run the race well. To live the life God has called you to live. Look at how Paul phrases it. He says, whatever you do, I'm not sure you can find a more all-inclusive phrase. It's whatever you do. He then reinforces it by saying, in word or deed, just in case you kind of missed that it's things you do and things you say, kind of a comprehensive concept that spans from words to works. And then he cumulatively emphasizes the idea by saying, do everything in the name of the Lord. So in case you missed it, in whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything. What's left out? Nothing. There is nothing outside of this instruction. This single verse emphasizes what it looks like to let God's sovereignty as Lord of lords and King of kings translate into personal supremacy. It highlights what it looks like to allow the peace of Christ to rule and reign in our hearts as we submit to Him in practical obedience, doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
If you look back at your week, can you say that everything you did honored the Lord? I can't. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Paul is saying that the virtuous lifestyle he described in verses 12 through 16 should result in a heart of gratitude and that we give thanks to the God the Father for everything. Friends, understanding how we should dress in many ways is a matter of maturity and instruction. We don't naturally know what to wear. When I arrived in London, I had no idea what I should wear. I learned quickly. When we first come to know the Lord, we may not understand how our lives should be adorned. We shouldn't assume that less mature followers of Jesus know what it should look like, which means we should disciple one another in these things. When someone's life doesn't look like this, does Paul castigate the Colossians that it doesn't match? No. He simply instructs the followers of Jesus in what they should put on. He identifies, hey, you guys used to be doing these things. That's who you were. But now, this is better. We are called as one body to help one another dress appropriately. In your life, in what ways do you reflect the Savior as you put on compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience? In what ways do those around you reflect the Savior? When you see it, encourage them. To what degree have you allowed the peace of Christ to rule in your heart so that way you rest in the Savior. And how do you respond to the Savior in thanks for who He is and what He's done? How do we respond to the Savior in thanks for who He is and what He's done? Let's pray. Father God, thank You for Your Word. says, let the word of Christ dwell richly in our hearts, giving thanks to the Father through Him. Let us do that now. Let our songs and response be filled with adoration and praise and thanksgiving that you may be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.